Well, this morning, we've come to the end of our mini-series on sound doctrine. We've been looking over the last number of weeks uh, through the fundamentals of our faith, what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ. And we've used a chart that kind of identifies the topics throughout salvation history. So we've covered a lot of ground in the last number of weeks. We started with creation, then to election, redemption, Messiah, exile, incarnation, resurrection, spirit. Jim addressed the spirit last week. This morning, we are going to focus on the kingdom. We are going to be looking at the kingdom of God. In many ways, you could say this is a culmination of our mini-series on doctrine, but it's not only a culmination of our mini-series on doctrine, it's really a culmination of salvation history. Some people refer to this as the consummation of salvation history. So this morning, we're going to look at the kingdom. So if you would, would you take your Bibles and open up to Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we do this often, but if you don't have a Bible with you today, I'd really encourage you to grab the one in the rack in front of you because we're going to be looking at a number of different passages this morning to help us understand the kingdom of God and its application in our life. Acts chapter one, it's page 882 in the Bible that the church provides. Last week, Jim started with Acts chapter one and he shared with us that the floodgates of heaven have opened up to all who believe in Jesus because we have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. Meaning as followers of Jesus, God through his spirit lives inside of us. Acts chapter one, verse one, because this text has more for us this morning. Verse one. In my former book, Theophilus, as Jim said last week, that's the gospel of Luke. I, Luke, wrote all about that Jesus began, all about that which Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Last week, Jim focused upon this gift of the Holy Spirit which is a pretty big deal. It's a pretty big deal. In fact, it's a huge deal. They are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, which means that God, through his Holy Spirit, is going to come and live within them, inside of them. It is a huge deal. But look at their response in verse six. Then they gathered around Jesus and asked him, Lord, Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What? Really? That's the question they choose to ask Jesus? He's just told them that God through his Holy Spirit is going to come and live inside of them and they don't want more details? They don't want a better explanation? They don't want to know more about what this means? They don't ask about the Spirit. They ask about the kingdom of God. 
Why? Because that's what's on their minds. That's what's important to them. And it's completely understandable. Look back at verse three. Verse three, it says, after the resurrection, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So for 40 days, Jesus had been speaking to them about the kingdom of God. So that's what's on their minds. And this wasn't the first time that Jesus talked to them about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a pretty big deal for Jesus. It is a pretty important theme of all of his teachings. In the gospel of Matthew alone, the word kingdom is used over 50 times. You see, all of Jesus' teaching is concerned with the kingdom of God. Almost everything in the Gospels is a way of describing the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is a pretty big deal. So for us this morning, that raises three questions. There are three questions that I would like to address this morning. First question, what is the kingdom of God? Second question, what does it mean that the kingdom of God has come near? Third question, what does it mean for us? Three questions this morning. The first question, what is the kingdom of God? Now for us, it can be a bit confusing because we don't typically talk about kingdoms anymore. Kingdoms are not things, we, we talk about governments, we talk about organizations. We talk about affinity groups in church. We talk about church. We don't often talk about kingdoms. You see, in our kind of modern understanding, a kingdom is, requires a king and or a queen. And that king or queen, they rule and they reign over a realm. A kingdom typically involves a piece of land. It's a piece of property with measurable bar markers and boundaries. A king or a queen has a people that they reign over, that they rule over, but they also have a realm, a particular piece of property. We kind of think about it like Queen Elizabeth II of England. Queen Elizabeth II reigns, she rules in England over the people of England, but there's also the realm of England, right? There's definable boundaries. Some people would add Canada. Some people might add Australia, but there is a realm there are definable, definitive boundaries to the kingdom. It's not that way in God's kingdom. You see, God's kingdom can best be defined as the reign of God or the rule of God. At this point, there is no realm of God. It is a reign or a rule that creates a people and will someday create a realm, but currently the reign of God and the rule of God are not synonymous with a people or with a realm. Look at how it says this in Psalm. The psalmist writes in Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. You can see from this how there is an association with kingdom and rule. It helps us understand kingdom as rule. And then look at the definition from these two theologians. Sinclair Ferguson defines the kingdom as the rule and reign of God, the expression of his gracious sovereign will, 
To belong to the kingdom of God is to belong to the people among whom the reign of God has already begun. And then George Eldon Ladd writes, the realm in which God's reign may be experienced. That's how he defines the kingdom of God. The realm in which God's reign may be experienced. Now let's be honest. When some of us hear about reigns and about rules, even when we talk about the reign or the rule of God, we kind of recoil a bit. Now I know we're not supposed to, I know we're in church this morning and kind of on the outside, we like the idea of God's rules and reign in our life. But sometimes on the inside, we think about God's rules and we think about God's reigns and we think God's reign and we think, you know what? I kind of like to make my own rules. I kind of like to reign in my own life. You see, often in our lives, we like to be our own king or our own queen. But the point of God's kingdom is God's kingdom is a much better way. It is a much better choice than ruling ourselves or reigning over ourselves, of being our own king or our own queen. Paul, when he is giving instructions to how to live a godly life and relate with people, look what he writes in Romans 14. Paul writes, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul is making the point that the kingdom of God is a much better way because the kingdom of God is God's righteousness, God's peace, and God's joy. And all of us, down deep inside, want to experience all of God's righteousness, all of God's peace, and all of God's joy. You see, the kingdom of God is a much better way a much better choice than making our own rules or reigning over our own lives. God's kingdom is righteousness, his righteousness, his peace, and his joy. And sometimes we balk at the rules, but Jesus says, no, my way is a better way. Now what's interesting is, is Jesus doesn't actually give us a clear definitive definition of the kingdom of God. He doesn't give us a short answer or there's not a verse that has Jesus saying, this is the kingdom of God. What Jesus does is throughout his teachings, throughout the parables and throughout his life, Jesus gives us a vision of the kingdom of God. He explains what the kingdom of God is like. Two examples. The first example is the Sermon on the Mount. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, page 785, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5 through 7 are a collection of Jesus' teachings that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you're worried, don't be worried. We're not going to go through all three chapters. We're just going to get a bit of a glimpse. The preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the Sermon on the Mount is the perfect picture of life in God's kingdom. You see, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount describes the character of a kingdom citizen. Look at Matthew 5, verse 3. Verse 3 is the first beatitude. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then jump down to verse 10, the last beatitude. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
And all of the Beatitudes in between describe a citizen of God's kingdom. And the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of God and those people who are part of it. You see, what Jesus is doing in and through the Sermon on the Mount is he is giving us a vision of what the kingdom of God is like. Second example, just turn back one chapter to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 23. Beginning in verse 23, we read a summary of Jesus' earthly ministry. Verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. What does it say that Jesus did? Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and he healed people of their sicknesses and diseases. Why? Why did Jesus heal people of their sicknesses and diseases? Well, first, Jesus is a pretty good guy. He's kind, he's compassionate, he sees people who are sick or are suffering from his disease, so in his kindness and his compassion, he heals them. Secondly, Jesus heals people from their sicknesses and diseases to demonstrate his power, to demonstrate that he is the Messiah, that he is the king of the king kingdom that he's been talking about. But there's a third reason that Jesus heals people from their sicknesses and diseases. The third reason is that he wants to give a foretaste of the kingdom of God. He wants people to have a vision of what the kingdom of God is like. And remember, the kingdom of God is righteousness, it's peace, and it's joy. And when there is fully full of God's righteousness, when it is fully God's peace, when it's fully God's joy, there is no sickness and there is no disease. So Jesus heals people to demonstrate to give a foretaste. Look at how Tim Keller, look what Tim Keller writes about these miracles. We modern people think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also a wonderful foretaste, wonderful foretaste of what he is going to do with that power. Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds, but a promise to our hearts that the world we all want is coming. You see, the kingdom of God is the world that we all want. A world that is completely full of righteousness, peace, and joy. So what is the kingdom of God? It's essentially, it's complex, but it's essentially the rule and reign of God through King Jesus that brings righteousness, peace, and joy. 
the rule and reign of God through King Jesus that brings righteousness, peace, and joy. Which leads us to our second question. Our second question, what does it mean that the kingdom of God has come near? If you go to Matthew 4, And look back, Matthew 4, I'm trying to get my spot, great, I can't count my numbers. Our second question, what does it mean that the kingdom of God has come near? Matthew 4, just a few verses earlier, now keep in mind that this is Jesus' first public teaching. These are the first, this is the first teaching that Jesus gives. Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, the first thing we need to address here is the phrase kingdom of heaven and the phrase kingdom of God mean the same thing. Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God refer to the same thing. What does it mean that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven has come near? Now, we have a better understanding of the kingdom of God, what that means But when it says it's come near, does that mean that it's here? Or does that mean that it's almost here? And if it's almost here, how far away is it? Well, again, we have a bit of a mystery here. So if you would, let's together dig into the mystery. Look, please turn to Luke 17. Luke 17, page 851. Here in Luke 17, in this story... Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And they ask him a pretty important question. They ask Jesus when the kingdom of God would come. Look at Jesus' reply. Second half of verse 20. The kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is is in your midst. First, Jesus corrects a misunderstanding of the kingdom. The Pharisees think that it is going to be a physical kingdom. They want observable, unmistakable signs. Essentially, they want the rule of the Romans to be overthrown and an earthly kingdom of God established. Now, they're not sure they want Jesus to do the establishing, But what they want is an earthly, a physical earthly kingdom of God established. And Jesus here says, no, it is not going to be that way. It's not coming that way. There's a level of mystery to the kingdom. But really, look what he says. The kingdom is right here in your midst. And what Jesus is saying is it's here because I am here. Jesus himself is announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. When Jesus first proclaims, repent for the kingdom of heaven is here, is come near, excuse me, he is in essence saying that the kingdom of God has arrived. The point that Jesus is making here in Luke 17 is that the kingdom of God has come so near that it is present because the king of the kingdom is present. See, when Jesus came, he inaugurated 
the kingdom of God. But here's the mystery. There's other verses that make it clear that the kingdom is not yet present. Just turn one one page over. Look over at Luke 19. A couple chapters, just one page. In Luke 19, Jesus tells a parable to make the point that the kingdom is not yet here. Look at verses 11 and 12. While they were listening to this, he went on to tell them a parable. Because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once, he said, a man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. Jesus tells this story when he is near. It tells us that he's near Jerusalem. And the people think that because he's near Jerusalem that he's going to make a move to grab power and set up an earthly kingdom. And that's what many of them wanted. Many of them wanted the destruction of Israel's enemies and they wanted an earthly kingdom set up. But Jesus tells this parable to make it clear that the coming kingdom, the kingdom is not coming that way yet. Look what he says, verse 12. It's pretty clear. A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and there to return. In other words, Jesus is going back to heaven. He's going to be gone for a little while and then he is going to return once and for all to establish his earthly kingdom in power and in glory. So the kingdom of God is still in the future. This is the mystery of God's kingdom. According to Luke 17, the kingdom has come, but according to Luke 19, the kingdom is still in the future. Now, this might seem a bit confusing, but it's actually pretty amazing. You see, the mystery of the kingdom is that it has come partly but not fully. Many theologians refer to this as already not yet. It is the already not yet aspect of the kingdom, which means through Jesus, through Jesus' inauguration of the kingdom, through his presence here on earth, the kingdom came. And it is presently with us. We are presently experiencing aspects of the kingdom of God. But we are not experiencing the kingdom of God fully. There are still difficulties in this world. There are still trials. There are still hardships that we experience. We are not experiencing fully the fullness of God's righteousness, God's peace, and God's joy. But one day, Jesus is going to return. He is going to return in power and in glory, and he is once and for all going to set up an earthly kingdom. So to our question, what does it mean that the kingdom of God has come near? It means already, not yet. Which leads us to our last question. What does it mean for us? What does this mean for us? What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? You see, this matters. I think sometimes when we talk about doctrine, you know, we've had a lot of weeks on doctrine, and you think about these first two questions, these teachings that we just went through this morning. It's it's doctrine. It's teaching. But this matters. Doctrine matters. Everything that we have learned in this series matters, and here is why it matters. 
It matters because what you believe determines how you act. You see, what you believe determines the things you do. You cannot separate what you believe in your mind from how you live your life. What you believe about creation matters. What you believe about the incarnation matters. What you believe about the resurrection, the crucifixion and the resurrection matters because what you believe determines how you live. And maybe most importantly, what you believe determines who you are. And you know what? It matters that the kingdom of God is already not yet. And here's why that matters. It matters because there is a battle raging right now in our world. Do you understand that? There is a battle raging because there are two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God, which is led by King Jesus. And the kingdom of God is present. It is not fully present, but it is present. And it is bringing righteousness, peace, and joy into the world. But there is the kingdom of this world that is fighting against Jesus and his kingdom. And the kingdom of this world is led by Satan. And the battle is real. Can I get an amen? When you go to school tomorrow, you will be in the midst of that battle. There's a bit of a reprieve in this place. There's a bit of a reprieve when we are here together in community and Jesus is uniquely present in this place. There is a bit of reprieve. But when you go to school tomorrow, you know that there is a kingdom of this world that is led by Satan that is trying to destroy you. And when you go to work tomorrow, it's no different. The kingdom of this world is trying to destroy you and Satan himself wants your destruction. You know it. There is darkness in this world. There is addiction. There is disease. There is death. There is pride. There is envy. There is anger. There is gossip because there is sin in this world and it rages. But the kingdom of God is light that influences and impacts and works its way into the darkness and the darkness will not overcome the light. But do not forget that you are in a battle. So what that means for us is two things, two practical applications for us as we leave. The first, we need to seek And the second, we need to pray, to seek and to pray. Now, let's think about this together. They're both found in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. You know what? Jesus knows. Jesus knows we're in a battle. Jesus knows the struggle. I know the struggle. You're going to wake up tomorrow morning, getting ready for school. Maybe it's not tomorrow. Maybe it's Tuesday. Maybe it's Wednesday. Maybe it's Thursday. But you're going to wake up afraid. You're going to wake up scared. You're going to wake up full of anxiety. How do I make it today in this world? Maybe you're going to go to work and it's the same feeling. You wake up, how am I going to get by? Jesus knows the struggle. 
He knows the battle. And Jesus has words directly for you this morning. Look what Jesus says. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. So do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. See, Jesus knows. Jesus knows that there's a battle and his instruction to you, his instruction to me is, don't worry. Your father cares for the birds. Is he not going to care much more for you? Do not worry. Do not be anxious. Do not be afraid. But if you're like me, sometimes when people tell me not to worry or not to be anxious or not to be afraid, it just makes me more worried. It just makes me have more anxiety. But Jesus doesn't leave us there. He gives us a very specific instruction. He gives us something to do. Look how he continues. But seek first the kingdom. That is the kingdom of God. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You see, our problem, our difficulty is when we experience anxiety, when we experience worry, when we experience fear, we tend to think we can control things. We tend to think if we just, if we just do things this way, then it will work out. We think that if I control, if I can make my own decisions, if I can make my own rules, then everything's okay. We think if I just take care of number one, then everything's going to be fine. That's not the way it works. Jesus says, if you want to be free of the anxiety, if you want to be free of the worry, if you want to be free of the fear, take your eyes off yourself and seek first the kingdom of God. And when you seek first the kingdom of God, what you will find is that your life will have purpose because you will be the person that is bringing God's righteousness, God's peace, and God's joy into this world. You will have purpose every day when you wake up recognizing that it is for you to bring the kingdom of God into whatever sphere of influence that you are in. You will have that purpose in your life and a byproduct of seeking first the kingdom of God, of bringing his righteousness, his peace, and his joy to the world, a byproduct of that is there will not be enough room in your life for anxiety and worry because you will be experiencing the righteousness, the peace, and the joy personally that God will bring to you. Amen. You understand? 
seeking first the kingdom. So often we place our eyes on ourselves and I, trust me, I get it. I am the first of sinners in this area. I understand what it means to look at myself first. Anytime I do though, I experience the anxiety and the fear that the kingdom of this world will lay down on you. But when you seek first the kingdom of God, everything changes. Your value system completely changes and you do crazy stuff. Like the world does not get you. Like people, people leave lives of comfort and ease. People give money to things that nobody else would give money to. People move to dangerous places. People do things that the world would not expect. But it is in seeking first the kingdom of God that you bring righteousness, peace, and joy to that world. And you in turn experience that righteousness, peace, and joy. Seek first the kingdom of God and all everything else will be added unto you. All of God's righteousness, all of his peace and all of his joy. Second thing we need to do is we need to pray. In Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9, Jesus gives us instructions. He tells us how to pray. Like he gives us this instruction. This is how you pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to stop praying small prayers. Did you hear me? Okay, I'm gonna do it again. Did you hear me? We need to stop praying small prayers. We need to pray big, a big prayer. And let me tell you something, your kingdom come is a big prayer. Because on one hand, you are praying that God will send Jesus to bring his kingdom fully to this world to end history as we know it. That is one thing you pray when you pray, God, your kingdom come. The other thing you pray when you pray your kingdom come is you pray that God through Jesus and his spirit would invade your life and would invade your world. You see, this is a big prayer. It is a huge, huge prayer. And I want you to know it is not a passive prayer. When I read this prayer, I tend to think it's our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. No, it is not a passive prayer. It is an aggressive prayer. In the original Greek, it is an imperative, which means it is a command. When you are praying this, you are not actually saying your kingdom come. The literal translation is come kingdom of God. You are issuing an imperative. That means I say this gently, you are commanding God to bring his kingdom. Come kingdom of God. And when you pray this prayer, your life will radically change. Because when you pray the prayer, that means God is actually going to come into your life. Come kingdom of God. And here's the thing. We pray only one of two ways. We pray only one of two ways. We either pray, my kingdom come, or come kingdom of God. And the instruction is not praying about my kingdom, 
The instruction is praying, come kingdom of God. Come and invade my world and bring your righteousness, bring your peace, and bring your joy to this world. Come kingdom of God. And when you pray that, you naturally, you naturally leave behind the prayer, my kingdom come. Now I know it can be scary. I know it can be scary to pray Come kingdom of God. But I promise you, I promise you, you will never regret praying that prayer. Because when you do, it circles back to the first instruction. When you do, it will enable you because of God's presence to seek first his kingdom. And your life will be filled with purpose no matter what you do, no matter where you live, no matter where you go. You will be a citizen of the kingdom that brings righteousness, peace, and joy to this world. And the really nice byproduct is you too will experience righteousness, peace, and joy. Choose the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ himself inaugurated the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God lives in, through us in this present age until the day when Jesus Christ himself returns in power and glory riding a white horse with a flame, flame of sword coming out of his mouth. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.